Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by Spalding University's Sina Jeter Naslund, Karen Mann Graduate School of Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to the Think Humanities podcast. We're going to introduce you today to another one of our interesting characters, uh, personnel, uh, gentlemen uh, from our Speakers Bureau from Kentucky Humanities. A shameless uh, brief uh, word about our Speakers Bureau. I'm so proud of all of the men and women who are involved in our Speakers Bureau. And if you are listening for maybe the first time or listening to the podcast and haven't heard us talk about the Speakers Bureau. Uh, these um, members of the Speakers Bureau, some uh, 40, 50, 60 of them are are available to you, your church group, your civic organization, your club, uh, to talk about a number of areas of interest in, in Kentucky from history to uh, beekeeping to recreation to hiking uh, to historical facts and figures, uh, scholarly work, uh, many authors, uh, books, uh, just an array of really fascinating people, people that you want to learn from and people that you want to know about. So one of those is with us today. He is Tommy Hines. He's the executive director of the South Union Shaker Village in Auburn, Kentucky. And Tommy has been the executive director in Auburn. He was just telling me that uh, for 37 years. So he knows a thing or two about that area of the country and about the the Shakers who populated that uh, part of the country. Tommy, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Tommy, um, for the people who are listening and don't know a lot about the Shakers, um, give us a time period when... Uh, both, uh, and is it fair to call them colonies? Yes, yes. Both colonies were in Kentucky, and we're going to talk a lot more about uh, South Union than we are Pleasant Village, uh, Pleasant Hill. Uh, So give me a time uh, period that we're talking about. Well, the Shakers sent missionaries to Kentucky during the Great Revival, and they were already well established up in New England, New York. And so around 1805, they they came here and established four villages in Ohio, one in Indiana, and two in Kentucky. So uh, Pleasant Hill was founded about 1805, South Union two years later in 1807. So early in um, in the the new uh, decade, the new the new century there. Um, What was the tell us about uh, what they were practicing and about their lifestyle and the kind of people they were uh, when they were living in the north? Um, They had been there in in the New England states and in New York since about 1774 and had already established about 12 uh, communities, colonies there and uh, just had wanted to expand into what they called the West when they came here. So they were a communal religious organization whose uh, sole purpose was really to live godly lives here on on Earth. Um, They also peppered that heavily with uh, commercialism, capitalism, and um, amassed 
great quantities of land and had industries and made products. And that allowed them to have these wonderful buildings that they lived in and worked in and these environments that uh, they created both in the Northeast and here in Kentucky as well. When um, they talk about, uh, or when the description in our Speakers Bureau uh, lineup on our Kentucky Humanities website, and by the way, folks, that's kyhumanities.org, and that's under Speakers Bureau. You can read all about uh, Tommy Hines, and you can read about um, uh, the Shakers and um, and uh, all of our speakers there. But you talk about uh, uh, the drawing convert converts uh, to uh, the the South. Um, that was because they were located first in the you said 1774, I believe, up in the New England area. So so certainly coming uh, geographically this way uh, was coming to the south. Uh, what was different for them in coming south than the lifestyle that they had lived uh, in the Northeast? Well, that is a many faceted question because. In, in those days, it was like a, a different world here than, than what you would find in, in New England. And we often say that, that people in this region uh, talked differently, they ate differently, uh, they built buildings differently, dressed differently. The whole attitude of, of work was different here than what you found in New England. And the Shakers had a hard time understanding that at the, at the beginning, but, but finally they did. They sent uh, leadership from uh, the Northeast to Kentucky to kind of uh, to get these villages established. And it was always really difficult for those leaders. They, you know, they really wanted to go home, uh, but they were dedicated to these Kentucky sites. And by the 1830s or so, they were having their own Kentucky grown leadership here in the state. What did um, what was interesting to them about making the conversion to to the South? What, uh, of course, the 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 weather was different. Uh, did they? Uh, and tell us a little bit about their lifestyle. We'll we'll separate the religious aspect of their life, if you can do that, uh, outside of their their work day. Uh, they were uh, certainly uh, great farmers and uh, produced a, a lot of. Um, of everything that they ate. Uh, they were also furniture makers. Just tell us a little bit about what they did uh, to uh, produce what they did. Um, as you probably know, everyone in the early 19th century worked a major amount of their of their life. Uh, you, you worked from the time you got up in the morning till the time you went to bed at night, and the Shakers were no different than that. Uh, because they had such a large workforce at South Union, for instance, they were able to accomplish great things. And they did make furniture, um, primarily for use within the community, but they produced all kinds of things to be sold in the outside world, from brooms to fruit preserves. They had a silk industry here, purebred cattle. Um, there, there were so many things that they made to sell and it was all tied to the land. So this farm here was 6,000 acres at one time and they used every last inch of it uh, to produce what they needed to, uh, to make money. So, you know, the men worked primarily with the men, the women worked primarily with the women. They came together for their meals three times a day in their communal dwellings and then went to their own respective sides of the hall uh, to retire, sleep at night. Um, so there was a lot of routine to what they did. 
but I, I think that's just part of living in the 19th century, too. What um, talk a little bit about that aspect of their lifestyle, the the separate uh, sleeping conditions, and uh, for that matter, uh, there were they were separated. And if you could, uh, Tommy, uh, describe for us for those who haven't uh, uh, been to either uh, Shaker Village uh, at Pleasant Hill or or at South Union, uh, the structure of the uh, the dwellings, uh, the separate staircases. Uh, that sort of thing. Just tell us how they they managed to uh, to stay uh, separate, but uh, were they also equal uh, at the same time? They were indeed, and that's another great thing about the Shakers that um, that they lived in what they call dwelling houses, and these large dwelling houses held anywhere from fifty to a hundred people each. So there were around four of them at Pleasant Hill, four here at South Union. And um, they're separated by large, wide hallways with two sets of staircases. So there was really no physical division other than that separation of a hallway. Uh, the Shakers believe that part of um, living a godly life was dedicating your whole self to that purpose. So they felt like celibacy was the way to go. Now, they obviously knew not everybody could do that. Um, that wouldn't be practical at all. But it was only for those people who chose to be here, to be within a Shaker village and wanted it to try this experiment to see if it worked. And it did work for a very long time. Um, there um, weren't as many issues with, with that as we would like to believe. And our, our even our visitors are very uh, inquisitive about the whole celibacy angle. But, you know, most of the people that were here during the 19th century were either single or single parents with children. So for people in that situation, it was ideal, especially women who had housefuls of children who might have lost their husband on the frontier or in some sort of a, an accident or, or illness. Uh, they came here and were given a, a wonderful place to live in a very modern, clean environment that was warm in the wintertime. Uh, three hot meals a day. Their, their children were, were taught in the good schools here and taught a trade as well. So it, it was ideal for that uh, for, for many, many years. Were the women who came with children uh, who might have lost a spouse, were they allowed to continue to have children? No, no. Once you were here, you once you joined the community, no, you lived as a um, as a single person here. And you did mention equality, and, and the Shakers did believe in, in uh, sexual equality, gender equality. Um, men and women had equal power within the village, and each Shaker community had a male and female that would oversee the entire place, uh, which was sort of revolutionary at the time. And then to get into it even further, um, they believed in racial equality and had black and white members here at South Union living in the same buildings together in the same rooms in the 19th century, um, way, way ahead of their time. And it didn't come easy, especially here in Kentucky. Uh, it, was a, it was a difficult transition for many, but uh, a successful one eventually. Was it a... Um... Uh, uh, back to the uh, aspect of uh, of the enslaved uh, or of African-Americans who might have populated uh, parts of uh, both uh, colonies. Uh, was it a, and I use the word haven, uh, just uh, a lack of a, a better word. Was it a place where 
African-Americans felt like they, they could go and, and escape slavery? Well, they, they could indeed. Um, although most of the, and especially in the early 19th century, the African-Americans that were part of this community came here with their um, former slaveholder. So slaveholders would come with their enslaved, but once you're inside the village, once you have signed the covenant, you no longer have slaves. Those people are free within the village. So there is a great amount of you know, freedom to grow and to learn and to, to rise to, to positions of leadership here. The problem was that they didn't really come of their own uh, choice again. They were, they were brought here. So some chose to stay and live their entire lives as Shakers, others left. And in the early 19th century, it was a very dangerous thing to do, to leave um, in, in, in Kentucky because many were recaptured. Many did escape to um, the Northern states, got across the Mason-Dixon line and uh, were successful. But um, it was a tough, tough time. But they did have some advantages here that they definitely did not have in this outlying region. Did all of the community members speak English? Um, for the most part, but uh, I know that at Pleasant Hill, there was uh, an influx of Swedish um, members at one point. Uh, you will see the Shakers, like any 19th century census takers, will list the nationality of people. So there were other nationalities here. I know there were some French-speaking people here uh, at, at one point. So, but by and large, mostly English-speaking members in Kentucky. What's the difference in uh, the, the two colonies? Uh, a lot of, uh, of our listeners uh, who travel Kentucky know that the central Kentucky uh, Pleasant Hill is much larger than South Union. Uh, in fact, um, I'm sure that you can explain that that just has to do with uh, the way the land was uh, either uh, divided or the way it was uh, um, sold off, uh, there, there has to be a, uh, a wise, uh, explanation of, of, of the difference in the two colonies. Uh, the communities in the 19th century were more or less comparable. Uh, you know, we always talk about statistics and, and South Union was larger as far as land mass. Uh, mm -hmm. Pleasant Hill had a larger peak membership, uh, but the communities were very close in size. They were um, they were like you know close in heart as well because they were in in proximity um, much closer than all those others that took so long to get to. Um, but South Union uh, stubbornly lasted until 1922. Pleasant Hill uh, ended in 1910. Um, and it is, you're exactly right. It's what happened after that, that that made the difference in the villages because eventually Pleasant Hill was purchased by more than one uh, buyer. Um, you know, buildings were saved and reused for different uh, uh, purposes. South Union, unfortunately, was bought by one individual uh, who had no um, qualms about tearing buildings down immediately. So of the 50 buildings that were here in 1922, um, he saved nine of them. And those nine were saved for specific purposes for his farm, uh, for farm hands or, or farm managers. 
things like that. Um, if if he hadn't have had need for those, they would have all been gone. So we're fortunate that only nine, that at least nine buildings are, are here uh, today. Now, so there are nine uh, buildings uh, still in existence at South Union. Correct. Now, if you'll help me, and this is going to be difficult for the listeners, but if they'll bear with me and uh, if they've been there, uh, they will understand and and sort of follow the the main road that comes in uh, and uh, comes to a crossroads. To the right is the the house, which uh, well, there's a house on the left and the right. The one I'm thinking of is sort of the headquarters uh, house, the the place where uh, there's some information. I think there are bathrooms. Maybe your office is in that room. That, that that's where we also uh, met a a really nice uh, gentleman who was uh, that day serving as uh, sort of a docent and and uh, doing some tours, that sort of thing. Um, that was one of the buildings. I think there was one maybe um, uh, directly across from that. But frankly, I did not see the other uh, buildings. Where Where are they located? Well, seven of the buildings are within walking distance of the visitor center. Uh, two other buildings are located in what was called South Union Station, which is about a mile from the village. And that was oh. when the LNN Railroad came through in 1860. The Shakers here developed a commercial district uh, with a depot and a hotel and a general store and blacksmith, livery, all that. Uh, just an attempt to make money after the uh, Civil War. So two of them are there. The hotel and the old store building are still standing. Yeah. What was their uh, position during the Civil War? Well, obviously, the Shakers sided with the Union uh, because of their stance on, on slavery. But being in Kentucky, um, you know, they, they saw troop movement from, from both sides. And they were located on what was called the Great Road, uh, U.S. 6880. The same road went through both Shaker villages. So it was not isolated in any way. And uh, there was constantly um, troop movement. And the, Shaker, the, uh, the troops soon found out about the Shakers' ability to make food quickly and in great amounts. So uh, they would stop for meals time and time and time again and camp here. And it was really the beginning of the end financially of the village. Uh, the Civil War was such a big hit uh, from a financial standpoint uh, for them. Both villages suffered but because of uh, because of that. But they, uh, they fed both North and Southern uh, troops as well. I was going to ask: did, Were they um, were they raided? Were they uh, under siege at, at any point? Were were any of their members um, uh, taken hostage or killed? No, they were they were never uh, taken siege. Or no, no real violence took place. Although there was some bad behavior here, mostly people who demanded uh, things, and there was a lot of destruction of fence rows because they took the fences up to burn them for campfires. And there was some theft uh, as far as uh, blankets and woolens and things like that, horses, but no one in, in real physical uh, danger. A lot of threats for that. Um, the, the, the real threat came after the Civil War when the Ku Klux Klan uh, began to attack South Union and systematically burned most of its barns and mills because the Shakers in those days were hiring um, African-American laborers and paying them a good wage. 
and in many times housing them too in some of the buildings. And that did not go over well with uh, some of the citizens here. So uh, they were treated much poorly after the war than they were during the war. Did that same occurrence um, happen at uh, South Union, uh, at, uh, at Pleasant Hill? At Pleasant Hill. You Pleasant know, I'm not really sure. It, okay. I, I think to some degree, but um, it, it was because of where we're located in Kentucky, I think it was yeah. worse here. And some of those attacks even made what we would think of as the Associated Press today. You know, that made all the newspapers across America, you would see these same stories being recounted about the attack on Shaker Village here. Well, you're not that far uh, from Russellville, uh, and that was a hotbed of Confederacy uh, during the war. Um, and uh, I'm sure that that probably led to some of these ill feelings and and the formation of the of the KKK. Um, when the were they originally from Europe? Uh, the original uh, the founders were from England. Yes, the, the the handful of people who came to America in 1774 were all from England. Had were they at that time uh, practicing? Uh, celibacy? Um, I don't think so. I don't think any of that started until they came here and really began to organize and create some sort of a theology, uh, uh, so to speak. And do, do you know why why they developed that? Was it after uh, you, you, you said at the very beginning of our conversation, the great uh, reformation or the revival, was it because of something that occurred uh, that they felt they needed to act on uh, and demonstrate? I, I don't know. You know, in, in those days, there and, and in, even beyond, there were a lot of um, experimental religions, uh, religious practices in America, communal ideas and experiments. And um, I, I'm not really sure why that was chosen other than just, you know, to create a perfect place. They wanted a heaven on earth, and they sort of used um, Christ as an example of um, not being married. And they also um, talked about the, the writings of the Apostle Paul, where he talks about the fact that if you don't have to be married, it's probably a good idea not to be. Um, so they took that to heart and uh, gave it a try. And you know, for many years, for 50 or 60 years here at South Union, there was no problem whatsoever uh, gaining membership. But um, that railroad that, that helped them so much in the 1860s with their uh, with their business practices, that's the same thing that began to take the young people to Nashville and to Louisville. And um, the community began to dwindle. And the membership that was here, of course, grows older. And, you know, and by 1900, there were only 50 people left here. And by 1922, only nine people were left here. And um, they still have thousands of acres and 50 old buildings to take care of. And it just was not working. Are there ever reunions of the uh, generations uh, of um, of Shakers that um, uh, of their family members that might come back um, and visit? Well, we haven't had any, any reunions, but, you know, there were people that were here that left, of course. Not everybody stayed their entire life. We are a hotbed of genealogy here because the, the Shakers kept such good records. 
And um, we, we um, answered inquiries this very week uh, for people who found information about their family here. And, you know, I don't know where else you could probably write and not just find a name and a date, but you can find, you know, for instance, what they were eating in 1862 or if if they were working on one of the buildings or what department they worked in here in, in the industries. Um, some of the things we find out aren't so great about people, but, um, you know, not everybody uh, was looked upon as as a, as a, a good member. Um, so all that to say that the information that the Shakers left is so vast. It's a very interesting thing uh, from a genealogical standpoint. Um, other than their celibacy, how strict was their religious activity? Or could you just describe uh, how um, in-depth that uh, religious uh, practice went? Well, I mean, they, they met like everybody else or most everybody else on Sundays in the meeting house together. And they would have meetings, religious meetings, some nights in the meeting rooms in their own dwelling houses. But, um, you know, it was pretty much all work uh, during the week. And it, it um, they weren't allowed really to have a lot of communication with outsiders. Uh, if someone came to visit you, uh, you could go with go uh, meet them at one of the buildings here, the trustee's office, and, and meet with your family or, or whoever. Uh, so you weren't kept from from people. And you do see a lot of traveling. Occasionally somebody wants to go home or somebody wants to go visit relatives and you, you see that uh, taking place. Um, but, you know, it's hard to manage four or five hundred people in a communal setting without having some pretty strict rules and uh, regulations. I'm talking to Tommy Hines, who's the executive director of the South Union Shaker Village in Auburn, Kentucky. Uh, Auburn's uh, population, Tommy, I'm going to guess is uh, below 500, what, two or 300 people? Oh, I don't know. It may be a little bit bigger than that now. Well, Auburn is growing. Um, oh, well, good. We're, we're so close to Bowling Green. You know, we're 10 miles from Bowling Green. And um, I've just heard recently there's a lot of houses being built <laughs> in Auburn. So good for you. Good good yeah, for you. Yeah. Well, that's terrific. Um, uh, but there is another story that I want you to tell us, and then we're going to take a break and come back uh, with an and completely change subjects. But uh, they uh, they produced a little um, a little whiskey, a little a little bourbon, didn't they? Well, probably whiskey, because they, they, they from the time that they started distilling until the time they sold it, there really wasn't enough time to make bourbon. But yeah, um, that's really some new research um, that we have been delving into. A couple of years ago, um, Colonial Williamsburg had uh, in, at their Antiques Forum a, um, a theme called Vice and Virtue. So they were looking at <laughs> America in the late uh, 18th century, early 19th century, and all the religious things that were going on, but then some of the other things that were going on too, simultaneously. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to look into this um, um, liquor thing within the Shakers. So I actually ended up going and speaking during the Antiques Forum about ardent spirits in Kentucky. And I just found a plethora of manuscript material about it. So apparently uh, South Union was the only Shaker village to actually have a still, uh, what they called their still house. And they produced uh, whiskey for about a decade before the Shakers in New York 
really came down hard on them and said, you've got to, you've got to stop it. But the Shakers here, it was just so ingrained in the Southern culture and the Kentucky culture. Uh, they actually tried to make the case that their work went much more quickly uh, with a little uh, alcohol in the morning, um, or they could produce much more, uh, you know, with, with a little alcohol taken into the workshops. Um, so after they said no more, um, whiskey, the Shakers here continued to make wine. Uh, they continued to produce hard cider. And when they went to New Orleans selling products, they came back with barrels of rum and gin um, and wine and all kinds of things. So it's not quite the picture people expect from the Shakers, but it, it happened. Well, of course, it was all for medicinal purposes, wasn't it? Well, no, not at all. <laughs> uh, no, that that's well, that's interesting. And and you discovered that on your own. I mean, you you got an idea and looked into it and, and found records there at South Union that that was being done. Well, we knew that, that there was we had seen bits and pieces, but not until you really start to canvas all the material we could get our hands on. You start to put the story together and it just unfolds. Uh, and, and again, just talks about the difference between the Northeastern Shakers and the Kentucky Shakers. Now, they made wine uh, in the Northeast, too, uh, but they really stopped uh, partaking, so to speak, uh, a little bit earlier than they did here, I believe. But uh, they, they just saw nothing wrong with it whatsoever at South Union. We're going to talk uh, to Tommy Hines about another character that he uh, will speak to your uh, group uh, about, your uh, civic group, your uh, family gathering, uh, your civic organization, an interesting character that uh, is probably unknown to many, many Kentuckians. And we'll do that right after we hear from this uh, word from our friends at Spalding University. At Spalding University's Low Residency MFA program, Creative writing students come to campus for an exciting week of learning each semester, followed by independent study from home that fits in with work and family life. Write prolifically, explore across genres, gain editorial experience on a literary journal, and become part of a lifelong writing community. Writers thrive at Spalding's Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing. Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Talking with Tommy Hines, the executive director of uh, Shaker Village at South Union in Auburn, Kentucky, uh, who's been talking to us in the first portion of the podcast about uh, the Shakers, uh, the village at South Union, and uh, some about the other colony in Kentucky at uh, Pleasant uh, Hill, uh, uh, and we will now uh, talk with him about um, somebody that he's discovered. Uh, well, I'll just ask him if he discovered or somebody tell him at some point you ought to look into uh, a guy named George H. Dabs. That's D-A-B-B-S uh, from Morgantown, Kentucky. Uh, Tommy, tell me about George Dabs. Well, I definitely did not discover George Dabbs. If you come to Butler County or Morgantown, uh, most anyone of any age will recognize the name of George Dabbs. And because he was such an influential character there uh, for much of the 20th century, and the fact that uh, his photography business 
was was there from about 1904 until 1935, and a really interesting period um, in our in our history. And he captured it with literally thousands of uh, photographs. So uh, I'm involved with the Green River Museum in, in Woodbury, Kentucky, which is in Butler County, and we have a really fine collection of his work. But no, he has been celebrated um, all along. But I, I feel like by doing this with Kentucky Humanities Council, I'm kind of making his work a little bit better known, hopefully outside of Butler County and Southern um, Kentucky. So tell me a little bit about uh, what, when you say captured uh, rural um, Kentucky, rural America, uh, the life that um, many of our fathers and grandfathers uh, grew up in and lived through, Tell me uh, what he did and, and how he uh, put on film what people can see today. Well, when he opened his studio in 1904, he was first a, a portrait photographer. And that's what you see mostly in our part of the world. People from that time period, just hundreds of, of portraits uh, in, in a studio type setting. But the thing that made Mr. Dabbs different was that he took his camera outside of that studio so he took photographs of uh, buildings in town. He took photographs of disasters that happened, like when the, the wooden water tank collapsed in the courthouse yard in 1912. You know, he was right there to, to film that. The great uh, flood of 1913, some wonderful pictures of that. And he would go to reunions and church services uh, he captured things like farming, uh, sorghum making, coal mining. Um, he knew that uh, life was changing, and you can see it in his work as time goes on. And uh, he will even uh, uh, capture a scene, and he will document it by saying the old way. So he saw that life was, was um, evolving and changing, and um, it was very, very forward thinking. I, I think of him as a historic preservationist when he probably would never have even known that term, but um, it's just invaluable work. And the, the Dabbs family still has a great collection of his glass negatives. And um, he printed postcards of, of events in the county and sold those in order to make extra money. Um, so, uh, he's just he's a he's a personal hero. And let me add, too, that besides that, he was just an incredible human being, too. Uh, he he was very talented and he could have left Butler County, but he did not. He, he loved that uh, that place. He lived there his entire life, never owned a car, never owned a home, always rented. Um, but was if you talk to anybody that remembers him and even those that have heard about him, one of the kindest, um, best human beings ever. He was also the, the song leader at the Baptist Church, and he taught Sunday school there. Uh, he taught art in the high school for a while. He was a musician, and he started the first band in, in Butler County. So just an overall great person. And Remarkable uh, man to know of. Who was... Um... Pressing enough to save his work and now have it uh, on display in a museum for all to see. Well, our, our museum in Butler County opened for the first time in 1980 or 82. 
And um, his daughter and son were still living at the time. And of course, they had a lot of his work and they began to bring things to the to the museum. Um, the museum kind of um, did not function after the late 90s, but we started it again in 2003 and um, are in the process right now of trying to number and document each one of the photographs that we know that exists and, and try to include all the information, the names of the people um, that are in those photographs. So we, we really have his two children to thank for saving that, um, that legacy. But I'll tell you this too, Mr. Dabbs was also generous. So he gave a lot of photographs to people in the county. A lot of his paintings he gave to people. Um, he actually, in his old age, began to enlarge photographs of uh, steamboats that he had made at the turn of the century. He enlarged those with low resolution and then painted those overpainted those and sold those in the 1960s right up until his death in 1967. In fact, he was working on one the night before he died and laid his paints down, was ready to go the next morning and, and passed away in his mid 80s. So he was generous, which means a lot of people have little bits of his work in, in our region. Well, he sounds like a remarkable uh, person and uh, someone who uh, a number of Kentuckians uh, should know uh, much more about. I think one of the most uh, fascinating uh, stories, and I'm sure that this is really a another story altogether, is the reference uh, in the narrative that we have on our website about, um, and you mentioned just a second ago, uh, the, the colorful steamboats uh, that he uh, captured on the Green River. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm learning that even though we think of steamboats being on the Mississippi and the Ohio and the Missouri and the large uh, uh, rivers of the of the United States, uh, the Green not being one of those, although uh, a good sized river, uh, there were steamboats uh, uh, up and down the Green just like there were on the on the larger rivers. Oh, there were, and and he was obviously fascinated with with those. I mean, and really, who wouldn't be? I, it's it's amazing to me when you look at these photographs to think that these beautiful big boats came up and down that river. And uh, so many people look forward to that for entertainment, for travel. Um, and it was just a fascinating time in our history. And thank goodness he was there to capture it. All of that ended about 1930 or so uh, as the railroad continued to grow and steamboats just went out of fashion. So he saw the, the end of the heyday really till it died in the in the 1930s yeah so we're and tommy once that. again those photographs are available uh, to be uh, seen by the public where again well uh the, the green river museum in woodbury and uh, the green river museum also has a a facebook page and we uh publish a photograph or two every pretty much every week and have a quite a catalog of his work there uh, on that um on that page well, Tommy, it's been a pleasure uh, talking with you today, and I, I'm sure that uh, people who are looking for um, a summer uh, end of summer getaway can uh, come down and visit you at South Union and and maybe even uh, take the short to trip over to uh, to Butler County and uh, Woodbury. I've certainly been to Morgantown. I'm, I guess I've driven through Woodbury, but I didn't stop at the museum and should have, and I, I need to do that. Uh, would love to see those um, some of that work. I really would. So maybe uh, that can be an intentional uh, uh, road trip for for me yes. at some point in time. 
Yeah, you let me know. I'll show you around. All right. Tommy Hines, the <laughs> executive director of the Shaker Village at South Union. Uh, thanks so much for being with us on Think Humanities. Thank you so much. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.